Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Sandra Richter this week. Sandy is a longtime professor of biblical studies, an author and theologian. As a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and having earned her doctorate from Harvard University, Sandy has become a veteran of leading student groups in archaeological excavation and historical geography classes in Israel, and has taught at several respected seminaries and colleges. She is an expert in environmental theology and has written several books, including her most recent entitled Stewards of Eden, What Scripture Says About the Environment and Why It Matters. In this episode, Sandy and I tackle the odd tension surrounding how someone can be both a Christ follower and an environmentalist. Sandy shares three reasons people often struggle with this and provides the biblical backdrop for embracing creation care. She explains how caring for the orphan and the widow relates to caring for the environment and provides examples of what your church can do today to make a kingdom difference in this area. This is a fascinating, eye-opening conversation you'll want to share with others. So now, won't you please join me in my conversation with Sandra Richter. Sandy, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's so good to have you with us. It is so great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, I was super excited about our conversation. And, and Sandy, I'd, I'd love to begin with a tension that, mm-hmm. um, that we see in our society. Uh, why do you think um, some feel as though you cannot be a Christ follower and also an environmentalist? That is the $64,000 question, now, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's interesting because, as you know, I've been uh, lecturing, preaching on this topic for probably a decade before I actually put my stuff into book form. And that's the tension that I'm constantly crashing into when I'm in continuing ed settings or interacting with the laity, uh, there's, as you said, this tension. And what I find over and over again is I'll have audiences full of open-eyed, open-hearted people who want to be able to stand up for this topic, but feel that in some way they are betraying their commitment Uh, to the church by doing it. Mm. And that was a a major motivating issue for me when I first started um, uh, speaking on this topic, examining it, researching it. So in the introduction to the book, I speak to three topics that I think are three issues that I think put Christians in this bind. And over this decade or so of interacting with the church, this is how I've distilled the conflict. And so the three issues in my experience, the first is political and specifically American political, which I find really intriguing. Uh, I was over in London this past February, right before COVID hit. And I was giving a public lecture for the Lang Lectures of the London School of Theology. And I entitled the lecture, Can a Christian Be an Environmentalist? And this entire a crowd of faithful English disciples of Jesus said, what? How could you be a Christian and not an environmentalist? So they have a very different political um, environment there. But in the States, 
Uh, it seems to me that environmentalism has been pigeonholed into a particular uh, political uh, profile. So in the States, if you're a Christian, and God forbid that I'm going to say this out loud, you're supposed to be a Republican. Hmm. If you're a Christian, you have to be pro-life, and I certainly am pro-life. Uh, you have to be a patriot, and uh, in light of that, you have to be a Republican. And so what's happened over especially recent decades is that because environmentalism has uh, become more of a democratic issue in our political system, it's become guilty by association. And so if you're going to be an environmentalist, that means you have to be a left-wing liberal, and of course that's not what Christians are. And so what I do in the book largely is challenge Christians to raise their eyes above their nationalistic political scheme and remember what kingdom politics look like. And remember that our God is neither a Democrat or a Republican. He's not uh, frozen in endless debates on the Congress floor. Uh, he has his own character and uh, his own affiliation. So I would say that's a major issue in the States is political affiliation. Uh, a second issue, I think, has to do with all issues of uh, social action. And that is that as Americans, especially, <clears throat> we don't see the impact of environmental degradation. You know, we live in a country that's been blessed with a lot of space, a lot of resources, um, an environmental protection agency, we export a lot of our envir environmental problems. And so we don't see or smell uh, the Ganges River that the United Nations has declared a dead river system. Can you imagine that? Hmm. The largest uh, river system in India. Um, its uh, prediction for future life is almost nil at this point in time. So we don't see what's going on in the Ganges River due to unrestrained industrial activity. We don't see the fact that Madagascar is now 90% deforested due to unrestrained big business. We don't see the collapse of village life in Punjab, India due to unrestrained industrial agriculture. We don't see it. And since we don't see it, uh, we often don't know what's going on. Uh, similar to the way we don't necessarily see the inside of a refugee camp or the uh, inside of uh, the orphan crisis all over this planet. So that's a second issue. And then a third issue, and one I think that is particularly difficult for uh, Bible-believing Christians to deal with, is the fact that we've got a lot of passages in the New Testament that seem to declare that the world is going to burn. And since the world is going to burn, why bother preserving it, right? Uh, since uh, Peter, Second uh, Peter 3, 10 through 13, uh, declares that the day of the Lord when it arrives, that all of the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up, that we as Christians need to spend our time doing what really matters, and that is converting souls. And if it means aggressively consuming the resources of this planet, well, so be it. So I would say those are the three big reasons that we in the States really struggle with the topic. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, and Sandy, I was curious, has there ever been a time speaking on that first 
that mm-hmm. first point, um, the political agenda piece. Has there mm-hmm. ever been a time when creation care wasn't tied to a political agenda in the United States? Yes and no. Um, early on in the history of our country, we simply had so many resources around us that we honestly thought they were unlimited. And I would say this is part of Adam's sin from the very beginning. Uh, we, see, we see life through our own lens and not through the Almighty's lens. And we're constantly caught in that conflict. You know, I, I think that's the nature of sin. I think that's the nature of fallen humanity, that we are, you know, we're essentially selfish, greedy um, creatures. And I, I name that for myself as well. Whereas when we take this issue uh, all the way back to the great blueprint of Genesis 1 and 2, we see that humanity was designed to protect and defend, not to exploit and abuse. So in the States, uh, I think the early settlers, we have lots and lots of testimonies of them being overwhelmed with the fruitfulness and the um, just resplendent beauty of North America. And for the longest time, our country just operated as though those resources were um, inexhaustible. And then when we finally started hitting the 50s, the 60s, and we started seeing, oh my gosh, there are limits to how much abuse this region of the world can handle. Um, The people who first stepped up were actually the sportsmen which is so interesting. We have this famous story of Teddy Roosevelt hunting black bear in the Mississippi Basin. Do you remember that story? And that's where the Teddy bear came from. And he was one of the great defenders of native uh, regions of, um, what would we call it, unspoiled territory. And largely because he himself was a sportsman, a huntsman, And it was probably in the late 50s, the early 60s, that uh, the rest of the population started spending, uh, paying attention. But unfortunately, most of this stuff came into the political arena as a threat to the average man's job. And uh, therefore, there was, uh, uh, first of all, uh, just an unawareness and then an economic pushback. But as I document in the book, Good Bid and you can find on uh, an array of platforms. The people who suffer the most from environmental degradation, and this will surprise a lot of your listeners, the widow, the orphan, and the farmer. The widow, the orphan, and the farmer are the people who get hit first and whose economic stability is wiped out by irresponsible use of the environment. And so I have a whole chapter in the book on the widow and the orphan, because my book is a biblical theology of creation care and uh, how it is uh, the folks living on the margins who are hit first and hit hardest. Yes, Sandy, I'd like to dive in a little more of what you share in in your book, Stewards of Eden. Um, When you say that creation care is an expression of care for the widow and the orphan, can you kind of unpack that a bit for us? Absolutely. So one of the challenges when you're doing biblical theology, as you know so well, is taking material that uh, comes to us in a different covenant administration, you know, something that comes to us through the Mosaic Covenant or through the Noahic Covenant, 
in translating it into the new covenant. Because of course we are new covenant people, but that's, that's my expertise. That's what I do. And my book Epic of Eden is, is all about how to do that um, uh, with your church, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm doing in the book is specifically a biblical theology. And, and I do it largely because of the chatter around the issue. I know that every Christian wants to hear the voice of our rule and faith and practice. And I know every faithful pastor out there needs help uh, distilling the biblical message out of the um, very conflicted conversation of uh, the news hubs and the podcasts and all that sort of thing. Um, so that's what I do. I do a biblical theology. So when we go back to the Mosaic Covenant, to the law of Sinai, and we talk about the widow and the orphan, we all know that the widow and the orphan get top billing in the Mosaic Covenant. And then James picks it up in the New Covenant as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, we hear this declaration, you say you're a Christian, show me and show me by the way you take care of the widow and the orphan. So who are the widow and the orphan? In the Old Covenant, they literally were widows and orphans because they no longer had a patriarch. They no longer had a pater familius, uh, someone running the bet of a clan protector um, because that was their social arena. In our world, the widow and the orphan are the people who are on the margins of the political and the economic system. And they're not necessarily widows and orphans. You know, a, a man could be in that category as well in the New Covenant. Um, But what I do uh, in the book is I talk through the legal system of the biblical text and how the members of the church community are required, required to step in and assist those within our community who are on the margins uh, to assist them either economically or to help parent their children or to defend them in the legal system. And that would be true all the way back in the biblical text, all the way forward and right now, right here, wherever your listeners are listening. Um, That's the biblical standard. And what does that look like in the modern day? And uh, run that through a couple of lenses. Uh, The book is full of case studies, by the way. And so I pull out a few good friends. Um, One is Matt Ayers has been the president of a small Christian seminary down in Haiti for the last 10 years and talk through how the environmental degradation of Haiti has impacted the quote widow and orphan of his world. And he talks at length about how those who are surviving by a subsistence agriculture in Haiti have been devastated by the deforestation, the flooding, uh, the, Um, just upheaval of their ability to feed their families, and therefore are the victims of forced urban relocation, wind up in the cities without their kinship network to protect and defend them. Uh, They have to live in the poorest regions of the country, which are on the edges of the rivers and the bays. Isn't that interesting? And because of deforestation, those are the areas that are hit by the devastating floods, by the mudslides, et cetera, et cetera and uh, they are victims over and over again. And then I also uh, interview my good friends, Neil and Danielle Karlstrom, who have spent the last 10 years in Madagascar, also as environmental missionaries. And same gig, they uh, come to speak to the widow and the orphan, the marginalized farmers 
who due to deforestation, unrestrained global um, industry in this tiny little exotic island have wiped out the environmental balance of the island. And as a result, uh, the locals are both starving and dying of ridiculous causes. So Neil went as a botanist and um, Danielle as a midwife. And in the name of Jesus, they've been teaching the locals to plant indigenous trees in their backyard gardens. The indigenous trees are sold to the UN and um, the Peace Corps. They replant their estuaries, which gives the locals uh, some means to support themselves. When the estuaries are replanted, flooding stops, the soil is retained, farming uh, is uh, reestablished, and Danielle assists with the current mortality rate. This just kills me. One out of every 10 women die in childbirth in Madagascar wow. right now and largely due to environmental degradation. And of course, we as American Christians, we don't see any of this. Mm -hmm. once, we, once we see it, uh, I know our people. We stand up once we see it, but it's a matter of getting the news out there. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. It's an interesting uh, way to kind of uh, break it down and think through it more deeply, um, mm -hmm. because often the um, creation care conversation um, is focusing more on in nature itself mm. as opposed to the impact um, on, you know, the, the, the widow, the orphan, mm -hmm. um, the farmer, as you've shared. So I mm -hmm. think that I definitely think that's kind of an eye-opening way to walk through it because many people, and you even, even write in your book, um, and I'm just going to read, read something that you share. You say, many devoted followers of Jesus have come to believe that it is ethically appropriate to use the earth's resources as aggressively as possible to accomplish what really matters, the conversion of souls. Right. Right. And so, and, yeah. and you touched on this a little earlier in our conversation and, and it's, it's interesting to juxtapose that against um, what you just shared about the widow and the orphan, mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, if, if we're truly following Jesus and we're stepping into that compassion that Jesus calls us to, um, then these two, these two things fight against one another. So can mm -hmm. you talk to us a, a little more about how the, um, you know, aggressive use of the earth's resources? Because we often hear, um, you know, people go back to Genesis and say, um, God gave us creation dominion. to, to yeah, mm -hmm. dominion over creation, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was, it's ours to, to use basically. So can you kind of talk us through, um, the, 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 you know, um, bad theology of, of that type of a thought and how that connects um, with this uh, greater importance and value that we really need to place on uh, creation care. Absolutely. Yeah, and thanks for asking the question. Again, let me emphasize, this book is a biblical theology, and it's short. It's short on purpose because I want to make it accessible. Um, the Actually, the title that I wanted IVP to use and they wisely chose a different one. Um, I wanted the title to say, um, Environmentalism in the Evangelical, Just the Bible for Those Justly Concerned. Um, and they're like, eh, let's go with this one. But that, <laughs> that is essentially my thesis, that uh, I, knowing your audience, these, it, we want to know what our Bible says. 
So when we get back to Genesis, and for those uh, who know me, you know that I'm very big on the blueprint. What was God's original intent for humanity and our life on this planet? And that blueprint is outlined to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, you're absolutely right. We were given dominion. And I actually detailed the various words for dominion, rulership, uh, authority over this planet. But the seven-day structure of the first uh, declaration of creation in Genesis 1, that seven-day structure uh, communicates a lot about the authority structure of this grand design. And you will notice that humanity doesn't wind up in day seven. <laughs> we wind up in day six because, yes, we have dominion, but we have dominion under the authority of the Almighty. We are creature, creature, we are not creator. We are steward, we are not king. Or should I say, uh, we are lessors, no, we are lessees, not lessors, meaning we're renters, we're not the landlords. So the dominion that we've been given is dominion that is intentionally patterned on the dominion of the, of the creator. So how does the almighty steward this planet? And there we get to the beautiful whirlwind speeches in the book of Job. Where were you, O Adam, when I uh, created the earth? Where were you when I set the boundaries of the ocean and told its mighty waves, this far you can go no further? Do you know where the eagle uh, roosts in, in the mountains? Do you know uh, the day that the wild mountain goat gives birth? And of course, Job has to answer over and over again, uh, no, no, that wouldn't be me. And Yahweh responds, no, that would be me. And his primary posture on this planet, uh, that would be God's, is this stuff is mine. It's mine. And I am offering you, humanity, a land grant, kind of like I'm renting you an apartment. And I'm also taking a security deposit. Yeah, I am. And if I show up after your three years of leasing my property and you've trashed it, I'm going to keep that security deposit, which is what Leviticus says about the exile. Thank you very much. You didn't keep my Sabbaths in planting your land, so I'm going to throw you out of the land for 70 years and let the land restore itself. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting all the, um, the canon here. The point being, Genesis 1 communicates that humanity has been given a type of dominion over this planet that is under the authority of the Almighty. Our job is to steward it, to protect it, to bring it to its highest level of production, and to return it to the Creator as um, whole, and productive and fertile as it was the day we received it. And the Mosaic Covenant uh, outlines how we do that. And we don't do it like some of the more uh, radical uh, Greenpeace people might declare of not touching it, but we do it by responsibly touching it, sustainably touching it, and working uh, in concert with it as opposed to simply abusing it. Yeah, that's... Um... You know, that, that is one of those things that if, if we can't grasp the heart of that, mm. we will we'll run off in a, you know, a trajectory that does not um, embrace the fullness of the kingdom. Mm. And, yes. And, and just, I mean, this isn't the only issue, 
um, where scripture has been used to justify uh, mm-hmm. things that God never intended, right? We see, mm-hmm. We've seen this throughout, unfortunately, the history of, of the church. Um, mm-hmm. But this is, this is one of those issues that I think we, um, and, and I appreciate your voice in this, um, that we need to um, focus in on um, even more because mm-hmm. of the devastation that's taking place, as you said, in many other areas around the world, not necessarily, um, not that it's not taking place in the U.S., but we don't see it as, as visibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember I was, I was in Cuba actually uh, doing some mission work. This was before the, um, the travel ban mm-hmm. was lifted. So kind of, um, you know, incognito in, in Cuba. And I remember there was an area that we were traveling through and, um, you know, there are probably about 10 of us together. And um, a local, as we we're traveling through it, said, you know, told us, hey, listen, make sure you don't take any photos, don't have any cameras out right now, you know, because this is kind of a sensitive area. Mm-hmm. And and what Cuba was, you know, the government was trying to say, hey, this is kind of a sensitive area in regard to um, it could be, you know, a, a political target or, or something along those lines. But as we got to this area, I remember just we were driving through just lush, lush green mountains and rivers, and all of a sudden mm. everything started dying. Mm. And it just literally we're looking around, everything was dead. And here was this massive factory mm. sitting on this river, and it was complete oh. um, devastation. Oh. And, you know, and, and the, the thought was that, the Cuban officials uh, were probably not as concerned as that being some sort of a political target as far mm-hmm. as, you know, um, if, if war to were to come up that someone would want to bomb that area as much as uh, kind of the embarrassment of that getting right. out, right? So um, we see this um, as we travel. We see the devastation that takes place. But it's one of those things right. where we need to really reflect as, as um, church leaders, as ministry leaders yes. on how are we helping to provide guidance to the people God has entrusted to us mm-hmm. um, and, and what what that might look like in practical ways. And I, I know, Sandy, that um, you share how during your time at Asbury Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. that Asbury really became a model in that community of, of an institution that was making strides to become sustainable, to mm-hmm. reduce its carbon footprint. I mean, there, that was, you know, something that they were really working on. Um, can you help share some practices that you and other leaders um, implemented at Asbury? And then can you talk to us a little bit? Are, are there things from that example that, you know, uh, the average um, pastor and the average church can actually put into practice in their own community? So let me start with that last one so that I don't forget Uh, There is uh, an entire appendix in the book committed to resources for the responsive Christian. And I target in particular pastors because, as you know, I've spent most of my career training pastors. And um, uh, in case we have pastors listening, you are the heroes of this generation. Don't Mm. let anyone tell you any different. You're on the front line. You're making it happen. And we are also grateful for you. Amen. Uh, Amen. So this whole chapter, there's a, there's a lot of focus on pastors in particular, because one of the things they don't tell you in seminary is that you're going to wind up uh, managing uh, a, you know, a several million dollar facility. 
you know, that's, that's not there in intro to Old Testament, New Testament doctrine or homiletics. Um, how, how, do you, how do you actually deal with the facility? And reality is that church facilities are a focus of local communities. They use a lot of energy. They have a big footprint. And what a witness that is to your local community if your facility is responsibly stewarding the property and the energy and um, uh, the water that, that uh, you're making use of. And as I travel from church to church, and I'm in a lot of mega churches in particular, um, I often have to search and search and search for a single recycling bin, let alone anyone there who's uh, watching energy use or paying attention to water runoff or any of those things. So there's a lot in there uh, for getting informed and taking steps forward. They start pretty mild and uh, they move forward. And honestly, Jason, I think that being environmentally minded is like any other sanctification issue in a Christian's life. You don't start off being financially responsible or being missions minded or improving your marriage or uh, beefing up your parenting um, at uh, level 10. You start off at level one, you know, and you start moving forward. And I think we do the same. We, we must do the same thing mm -hmm. with environmental concern. So uh, that's the pastors. What happened at Asbury? Okay, so Asbury was uh, my first experience with uh, a church-minded group. I actually had forced every office job I'd ever been responsible for uh, into getting into recycling as well while I was working my way through school. But at Asbury, as I um, narrate in the book, we had a kingdom conference. And for those Asburyans out there, Christine Pohl, who was our ethics prof, was running the conference as she had for years. And in 2005, she decided to take on environmentalism. And meanwhile, I had been chairing a community life committee or something like this that really had no agenda for the year. And I was like, no agenda? Hmm, I have an agenda. So we, we had been working with institutional awareness over in my committee. And then Christine decided to focus on this for the conference. And she invited me to preach on environmentalism. And so this would be the first time I stood in a pulpit and tried to communicate in a theological compelling fashion that this is a Christian issue. I was scared to death. Hmm. Um, and I also prepped out the wazoo, right? So <laughs> I, was I was loaded for bear. Um, they gave me 15 minutes. I took 20. And uh, we... I, I, the, the response was phenomenal, just phenomenal. And when our community got their, sunk their teeth into the idea that, wait, this is Christianity, uh, we saw a big swing in the community. And so we began working specifically on our recycling program because we're in central Kentucky. And environmental concern is very regional in this country. Uh, we didn't have a recycling bin anywhere. Um, we produced reams of paper that just went into trash cans and, and we changed it. We did and did some really cool stuff 
uh, for Asbury. And shortly after my tenure there, um, Tim Tennant came in, and he's also very much uh, environmentally minded. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Asbury has done well. Um, I'm sure they still have lots of growth areas, but uh, they've taken a stand, and that's been cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Sandy, but before we wrap up here, I, I would love for you just to share if you had the opportunity, let's say uh, a local pastor wanted to mm. sit down and say, Sandy, um, I hear what you're saying. It resonates with me. It will mean a, a change for mm-hmm. our people. Mm-hmm. It, it won't be an easy change. Mm-hmm. But if you were to, to say, hey, here are you know, three, three things to start, one, two, three, what would you recommend that a, that a, a regular pastor, if they wanted to start moving this direction, what are just three things that you'd say, hey, this is, this is where I would start? Well, I think the first thing I would do would be to help yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, and your people see that this is a biblical concern. That's where we have to start. Mm-hmm. And I think that launching into this topic without a biblical foundation is going to do more harm than good. Uh, your people are going to spin off into a political agenda. You're going to wind up dividing your community. And uh, not only with the division and the fracturing, but the change will be unsustainable. So not to be self-promoting here, but I would encourage you to get hold of my book or something like it Mm -hmm. and start a reading group, 10, 15 people, a small group that read through Um, this book or one like it and say, oh my gosh, this actually is in our rule of faith and practice. So I would start there and start with a sound biblical theology of why this matters. So that would be the first place. And then I anticipate that that concern will begin to grow organically throughout your community. And as it grows organically, and as your people become informed, and what they will do uh, in response to reading a book like this is they'll subscribe to uh, Sierra Club or to the Nature Conservancy and, and start getting more and more informed. The next step is that they're going to want to show testimony of that change in their own lives, which is gonna affect their households, and is going to affect the actual church facility. Um, Matthew um, Sleeth, a good friend of mine, Matthew and Nancy Sleeth, they run Blessed Earth. They started uh, an organization called the Seminary Stewardship Alliance, which has now been folded under uh, Blessed Earth. They actually have a curriculum, a DVD curriculum that you can use in churches uh, that will help pastors get more informed about what to do with that $4 million facility that you're busy managing that shows more environmental responsibility. So I would start organically, get that biblical theology down, then start pursuing actual change in the facility. The way we're doing it at my current church is we've got a young woman who's deeply invested. We're tagging her as our coordinator. We're starting a small group Bible study, and it will start bleeding out into mm-hmm. um, the organization of the facility. Um, I'm going to argue to you that environmental stewardship in your facility actually will be a financial boon 
to your facility, you'll be pleasantly surprised mm -hmm. to find out that the budget will move more into the black as opposed to more into the red. And then the huge payoff, right? Which is that your church community is going to be able to honestly say that you are environmentally concerned. And can I tell you what that will speak to your larger community? Hmm. I have people all the time in my world, all especially right now, saying, oh my gosh, you claim to be an evangelical? Then you must be a bigoted da 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 right. da. And then they say, and you're an environmentalist? <laughs> hmm, how does that work? So uh, all that to say, I, I think our environmental concern is a huge witness to our local communities and to our global communities. And then last thing, I truly believe that environmental missions is the missions movement of the 21st century. In the 19th century, we went to foreign lands and we built hospitals and orphanages and transformed the profile of the poor and downtrodden as a result. In the 21st century, we're going to go and dig wells and plant trees and fight for river systems. And mm. we're going to transform the lives of the marginalized and the downtrodden. And it's a witness, a very profound witness. Yeah, I love that. I love that vision, Sandy. Thank you so much. Uh, mm. Thank you for, um, it's, it's, it's just amazing. I have the opportunity to talk to so many different people. It's amazing just to see God's fingerprints all over your life and how he oh. uniquely, you know, took you along this path and continued to open your mind and your heart to, to something and, and um, allowed you to grow in that, to dig deeply as we, as we um, can hear just from um, not only your passion, but just your, your biblical knowledge and theological knowledge and that this is something that, that uh, God drew you really deeply into so that you could help uh, the church um, embrace these kingdom values. So thank you mm -hmm. for your work for the church and for the kingdom. You are so welcome. And Jason, do you mind if I read one last quote to you as we close this down? No, I'd love to hear it. Okay. I close the book with, uh, the, the conclusion is titled, How Should We Then Live? And I dug up this quote by Gus Speth, who was the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter, and has served in environmental politics for the last 30 some odd years. And he's totally secular, a total insider on the environmental movement. And when I read this quote, I had to write a chapter about it. So let me read it to you. Gus Speth speaking. He says, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. So as a Christian leader, and I'm sure for you as a pastor and a leader, you hear those words. And my first response is to jump up off the bench and say, put me in coach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, because this is exactly what we do. This is what the church does. This is what Christian leaders do. You need a change that involves selfishness, apathy, and greed. That's what the community of Christ is able to address. And what I heard in Speth's quote, 
and what I hear from the widows and the orphans in this country, in Appalachia, and in Punjab, India, is uh, we need help. We need help. And we need the kind of help that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. And my dream, my vision, is that our pastors, our Christian leaders, will jump up off the bench and, and shout out, hey, I can do that. Put me in, coach. So that's my vision for environmental efforts uh, in this country and in this world and the witness that will derive from it. Powerful stuff. Yeah, I love that, Sandy. That's great. Excellent, excellent. Um, you've given us a lot to uh, think through and to pray through and to talk with our leaders through. Um, and for our listeners, we will have links to Sandy's books in the show notes for this episode. So you can go there and get those. Sandy, thank you again so much for being with us. Jason, thank you. Thanks so much for the invite. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcasts at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out FaithPlay. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.